you brought your Bible, go ahead and get that out. And uh, I've been teaching a series, we're in the middle of a series called uh, The Real God. The Real God. And uh, our text for this series has been Psalm 34 and verse 8. Let's read this together off the screen out loud uh, right now. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And so David, there writing and speaking by inspiration of God out of his own experience, he had come in contact with God, the real God, and he came away saying, he's good. He came away saying, he's good. You don't have that kind of firsthand taste, firsthand experience, and come away not liking God. Because <laughs> he is good. Anything we believe that's other than that is, is wrong believing. And, and, and part of my motivation in teaching and explaining various things about God's goodness is to remove any obstacle that might serve as a hindrance to that belief. Because if I'm praying to him and I don't believe he's good, then I don't know if he's even going to help me. If I'm praying for him about something that's a problem in my life, I don't know, maybe he's the one who put it there. But if I know he's good, then I can get past all that confusion and unbelief and question, and I can go straight to trust and then receive answers and then receive help, receive strength, receive victory that I need in this life. Praise God. And so uh, when judgment takes place, it's a subject we addressed last week. When judgment takes place, uh, it does not please God. All right. I know he's the righteous judge of all the earth. That doesn't mean he likes it. That doesn't mean he gets any joy or satisfaction out of anyone getting what they've got coming to them. No, uh, just the opposite. People suffer contrary to God's will, contrary to what he wants. He is working towards them day and night so they can avoid suffering, so they can avoid the pain, the, the, the evil things that are going on that happen in this world. And so if we know that that's the way that he is, we're never going to run away from him like he's going to hit us. We're always going to run to him and jump, right? I'm thinking of like a kid jumping into their parents' arms. You know, we're going to him because he is going to save us from the things that are ruining and messing up our lives. And so basically God planned this elaborate um, journey where his son would become one of us, take our place, suffer in our place, conquer death, so that, watch, so that God could legally bless us. He could legally set aside our wrongdoing and accept us, embrace us, and love us, not breaking justice. Justice says, you break the law, you do the time. He maintains justice because Jesus paid it for us. So he can bless us legally. That's what he always wanted to do. All right. Now, if you would, turn with me to the book of James, chapter 1. James, if you're new to the Bible, then that's right towards the end, just past Hebrews. And James, chapter 1, if, you're, if you know James really well, you might call him Jim. But that's between you and Jim. 
Uh, James chapter one, notice just one verse. You can read the whole book on your own. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. Well, well, why shouldn't someone say that? For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone, meaning with evil. He doesn't test or test or tempt anyone with evil. Now, what we have in this book, and, and like I said earlier, I want to remove any obstacle that would hinder anyone from believing and knowing that God is good and he's good towards them. All right, so when we have this book, there are, uh, it's not all the same. The time in which things were said, whether it was, the big issue is whether it was pre-Christ, you know, or BC, right? Or after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, it makes a huge difference. But afterwards, we get light, we get more clarity, we get understanding. The writers of the New Testament give us the, the information we need to know who's behind the, the bad things that happen, all right? We find out that when it's evil, God wasn't behind it, all right? If you don't have that new covenant clarity, you might be confused in, in regards to some of these things. Now, I, I understand this, that people, and I've heard this you know, explained or argued, however you want to say it, but people will say sometimes, well, what about individuals who they reject the Lord and then they get some kind of disease or sickness, they're laid up in the hospital, and then they turn to God, all right? Then they turn to God. Then they deduce by the, the end result, by the outcome, they say, that must have been God working in their life. He must be the one that broke their knees, or, or whatever, or gave them the disease. He must be the one that got them in the car accident. He must have done that because the end result was that they got saved. So I understand that logic or that, that thinking, and, and I can tell you firsthand, I do know of people who resisted the Lord and resisted the gospel, resisted Jesus for most of their life until they got a report, you're gonna die. You've got three weeks to live. And I can, I'm thinking of one right now. I got to pray with the person right over here. They came up in a service. No one else knew their story. I knew that person's about to die. And they've been resisting God their whole life. And now they know they don't want to go to hell. So now they're getting saved. Now, someone could say, well, isn't it wonderful God gave them that disease so that they would get saved? No. It's wonderful that they finally gave in. It's wonderful that they saw, you know, the seriousness of, of eternity. There are some good things there like that, but I can't go backwards and say that's the way God, that's the thing God had planned for them. They didn't get sick according to his will. It was opposite of his will. Because they responded in that situation and gave their life to him, I'm shouting, I'm saying, praise God, he is merciful. He is so merciful. You mean someone can get saved forever and they only served God for like two weeks? Yep. It's risky business to wait. Very risky. But when someone does, I'm shouting with them and I do believe there are deathbed conversions that are genuine. All right. 
But someone said, well, what about that then? Okay, well, slow down. What about all the people that go to the hospital that never turn to God? What about the people that get terminal diseases or get in car accidents and they're lying on their back just like the other person is and they, and and they just say, no, I don't want anything to do with that. Because that happens, by the way, more often than the first scenario. Yep. I'm just saying we, can, we can't uh, conclude by some positives that come out of circumstances that were negative and say that that's God's method or that's God's way or that's God's will. It's not. He would, your life doesn't have to be destroyed before you get saved. It happens with some people, but you know there are others who are at the top of their game. They're, they're making a lot of money. Their lives are generally good. They don't have a disease. Everything's fine. And they, in that situation, come to the realization, maybe through the prayers of others and others sharing the gospel with them, they realize, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Even though I have all this, I have worldly success, I'm in trouble with God if I don't you know, get rid of the sin. And they get saved in that condition. You know that happens too? Yeah, it happens a lot. So uh, let's just understand the way God works. What I want to do is kind of remove the, the, the wrong thought pattern. Okay, well, you know, God used my divorce to, to really get my attention. No, he didn't. He was talking to you before the divorce. He was talking to you in the middle of it and after it. And he loves you on either side of it, but no, the hat wasn't him. He had nothing to do with the breakup to get your attention. Hallelujah. <laughs> um, there's an old saying that goes, the school of experience is a great teacher, but the, the tuition is way too expensive. Yeah. Smart people do learn from mistakes and they learn from bad situations. I want to learn. Why? Because I don't want to repeat. <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's God's way of teaching us. How many know he gave us uh, the Holy Spirit is our teacher. He will teach you all things, Jesus said. He even put teachers in the body of Christ, the five-fold ministry. One of the gifts of God in the earth is a teacher. I'd rather learn from a teacher and from the Holy Spirit and from reading the scriptures than through the broken leg. <laughs> you know? Uh, and that's really God's, God's method. Uh, but, you know, when someone says, the Lord took my house from me, well, did he? Just because you lost it, I'm not going to say that was God. I don't, that's too big a leap for me. Or, or someone said, you know, the Lord got me fired from my job or the Lord took my job so, so, so I would finally look to him. Well, no, nah, I'm not going to say that. I don't have verses that, Bible verses that tell me that he does that. That doesn't seem correct. Okay. Because uh, lots of people lose their jobs again and don't ever look to him. So why did he take their job? That was a bad strategy. Oh, the Lord led me into this season of depression just so I would learn to look to him for my joy. No, he didn't. No, he, wants, he didn't ever want you to go through that. Now, if you say, when you was in that and I looked to him and he led me out of it, I'd be with you on that. That sounds, that sounds correct. He led me out and he restored my joy. He helped me and... And, uh, and if that's the time you look to the Lord, good for you, you know. <laughs> it's one thing to be dumb. It's one, another thing to be double dumb. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Double dumb means we don't even learn anything even when we're going through it. Yeah? <laughs> Everybody okay? Think about a good parent. A godly parent is never going to 
harm their child to teach them a lesson. Okay? I'm not talking about spanking. That's not harming the child. I'm talking about, you know, the stove is hot. And I need to teach little Johnny about what hot stoves do to hands. Johnny, get over here. Give me your hand. (laughs) Am I going to do that? No. That's abuse, right? That's cruelty. That is a... Now, will Johnny learn the lesson if I do that? Yeah, for sure. He'll never again burn his hand on the stove. He'll know, he'll remember that experience. You would say, lesson learned. He'll also learn some, something about me. Right? I'm just saying, we wouldn't do that. We're going to teach them about those things, but a different way. That doesn't harm them. God wants to teach us. He wants to teach us a different way. Now, if we, if we resist him and say, well, I don't think it's going to hurt. <laughs> if I stick my own hand on the stove resisting God, well, that's not, that's not on him. That's on me. Okay. And I, I don't want to come around and say, yes, the Lord is so good to me. He taught me about the hot stove. <laughs> now, yeah, that was your own method of learning. Now, when it comes to uh, Bible verses, let me back up. The abundance of revelation clearly says and demonstrates the goodness of God. There are a smaller amount of passages that can, if not understood correctly, confuse people in understanding why certain events took place. All right? I want to answer. I dealt with this some last week. I'll do it further now. I want to answer some of these. We're not reading every verse in the Bible. That would take a while but you can catch the general principle of how to understand especially Old Testament scriptures that seem to indict God or put him in a, in a less than desirable light when it comes to what he does, okay? Here's one of those verses. It's Isaiah 45 and verse seven. Take a look at that with me. It reads, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, again, at first blink, you you think, eh, that doesn't sound good, Lord. What are you doing creating darkness and calamity? I thought you were a good God. But back up and analyze what is being said here, okay? What is darkness? Darkness is the absence of light, Genesis 1.3 says, and God said, let there be light. So light was formed, and that basically revealed what darkness was. Darkness is the absence of light. And so he created, how did he create darkness? Well, by creating light. It showed what darkness was. It, It revealed what really existed. The same thing could be said about calamity. It is the opposite of peace. All right, when there is no peace, there is calamity. When I say peace, wholeness and soundness and, and, and so forth, you know, shalom. And when, when, when there's not that, there is the other. And so God bringing good is, in essence, revealing the opposite. And this is important in a fallen, corrupt, sinful world that God show his ways and it basically reveals everything else. Okay, and so... Uh, This verse does not reveal that God originates or promotes darkness and calamity, okay? 
Rather, he defines it by who he is and what he does and dealing with a fallen world. That's, that's what makes God known. He's the opposite of so much of what is happening. So it's only in that sense would we say he created these things, all right? Now, is that confusing? It, if it is, if it still is confusing, how do we understand it? We go to the New Testament. If I don't understand something in the old, I go to the new for clarity. And I read the words of Jesus. I see what he said, what he did. I go to James 1.13. I see that God's not involved with the evil. All right? I get my clarity from what's not clear from the revelation of the new covenant. One of the big questions that I think is important to understand, especially when reading the Bible, is the question of who did it. All right? There's a lot of confusion about who did it. Who made this happen? And this is true in, in large part because of uh, culture changes, uh, language translation, and other factors. But the Bible has been under constant attack forever. The devil wants to undermine God's word so people don't believe it and get saved. So people don't believe it and get healed. So they don't believe it and worship God instead of him, all right? But every now and then you have people who, you know, that aren't believers and they, they're looking through the Bible to find something to get you. And they think they found, when they find verses like this one in Isaiah, they say, see? I, well, I sometimes want to chuckle and say, yeah, you, you, you totally, I mean, it's sarcasm, but you totally got me. I didn't even know that verse was there. <laughs> You know, it's like, uh, don't you know? We read this more than you. <laughs> and that uh, we might have some experiences that dismiss every argument that you, you can possibly come up with. And anyway, back to these verses that seem to be somewhat unclear. There was a time when David, King David, was moved to do a count of Israel and Judah. And the way the scriptures state it, uh, I think needs understanding from any, anyone who would seriously study the Bible. And it's found, the first one is found in 2 Samuel 24 and verse 1. And I want you to notice the words used here. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel and he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. So reading that, again, face value, translation from Hebrew to English, God move David to do something that he didn't want them to do. That doesn't sound right already. And you read the passage, there, uh, God is angry with, the, with what he did. He is not pleased. Yet it sure seems like, well, but Lord, you made him do it. You can see that that's not just. We wouldn't be, you know, think of a parent doing that, making their kid do something or moving them to do something wrong and then punishing them for it. You think you are cuckoo. Okay, give God the benefit of the doubt and knowing what we're dealing with. So he's moved against moving David to do something he doesn't want him to do? No. And James 1.13 contradicts that. But here's the thing. That verse, when you compare it to another verse, if you read the Bible, the Kings and the Chronicles have some of the same stories in them. They're not exactly the same, but renditions of same event, similar events. And in 1 Chronicles 21 and verse 1, here's another... Thing describing the same event. 
Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. Wait a minute. Are you saying like the Lord and Satan are the same? No. <laughs> but it does make you wonder and ask the question, who did it? Did the Lord move David or did Satan move David? These are both written in our Bibles as such and we need to understand. Again, you do the math. You know it wasn't the Lord who moved him to do it because he was angry with him for doing it. So what's the answer? It was Satan that did it. And in essence, the, which some of the language barrier and the culture of how things are presented, God basically didn't stand in the way. He permitted it to happen. He allowed this to go on, but he wasn't for it. He didn't cause it. He didn't want it to happen. It was the enemy that moved Satan to do these things, and God basically didn't interfere. This is some of the way that language was used in their day, and I think it still continues to this day. In other words, when someone allows something to happen, it is said that they caused it, or they permitted it, or they wanted it to happen even though they didn't, but it sometimes gets, gets um, inferred that way. And this is something is important to know that principle when reading the Old Testament, okay? Because there are many, in fact, many scholars will, will say these very same things that God is frequently described in Scripture as doing what he merely permitted to be done. And by the way, God permitting something to be done is not the same as him wanting it to be done. Sometimes things are, they, hap, they have happened because his hand was forced by justice. By the way, I'm not to the new covenant yet, so peace, be still. <laughs> All right? But in this case, Satan was the active mover against David, and the Lord didn't stop him from doing it. And so that's really what took place there. Uh, but again, not only did it happen then, but even with all of our understanding, and we have this whole Bible, there are many Christians today who attribute everything that happens to God. If anything happened, the Lord did it, or the Lord permitted it or wanted it to happen. And, and, but listen, think about it. There are at least three players in every circumstance, potential players. That is God, that is Satan, and you, right? And whenever something happens in life, I should not immediately say, it's the Lord. Because that's, that's a, a lack of um, discernment. All right. What about the devil? What about the thief who came to steal, kill, and destroy? Think he had anything to do with it? What about me? What about the decisions I make? What about my yieldedness to the Lord or my resistance of God's will and God's plan? Does that not factor in at all? And so I want to take into account all these things when making assessments of why things are happening and what can be done about them. And is the Lord, the good, supposed good God, doing evil in my life? The answer is no. Now, bring it into the new covenant, just for a, a, just a short caveat here. In the new covenant, meaning after Jesus was raised from the dead, what is allowed or disallowed is not all God because he has turned over the power of these things to the church. And now any saved person has the ability to accept or reject, 
to resist or to allow. And so when, when, when people are quick to say, well, okay, maybe the Lord didn't do it, but he allowed it. Stop, 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 stop. He left you in charge. He left me in charge. Watch. He gave us his name. He gave us his word. He gave us his promises. He gave us the blood of the new covenant by which we are saved. He gave us the ability to resist the devil and he will flee from us. Come on, I have power and authority in Jesus' name. And so I should never be saying, well, Lord, why'd you allow this evil? Now, maybe through lack of understanding, people do that. But come on over again. Come on over into the new covenant. We've been raised with Christ. We're seated at, in the right with Jesus at the right hand of the Father. We've been authorized to rule and reign in this life. Yeah. I remember reading the story uh, some years ago about uh, uh, Norval Hayes and his daughter who had all these uh, rashes and different things on her skin. I guess just as a teenager, just really ugly skin. It was horrible. And he was praying and praying and praying for hours and hours and, and, and praying about this situation. And, and he had an experience with God where the Lord caught him up and in this spectacular, really, experience, the Lord said to him very strongly, he said, how long are you going to allow those things to exist on your daughter's body? And of course, that revelation shook him. He's thinking God's permitting this. God's not doing something about it. And the Lord said to him, why don't you stop it? And then he did. <laughs> and then he used the name and the word of God and declared and broke that curse over his daughter's uh, her, her daughter's body, and over, over, uh, he, and it didn't happen instantly, but over a period, he one day, he, he, her, his daughter was hanging up her dresses, something like, if I remember the story right, hanging up her dresses, and she grabs, grabs up another one, puts her dress up on the, in the closet, and her, her skin is instantly all cleared up. Isn't that nice that God did that? What God did is give him a revelation of his part. What God is, is give him understanding that I'm working through you. I'm working with you. I'm using your mouth. Amen. Again, that's, I, have a, I have multiple series on that very subject that explain that in great detail. But in the new covenant, we can see the allowance thing is much more in our court than many times people think. Amen. There was another thing I was reading some time back. I was reading about David in the time when David was called to be king, but Saul was still king of Israel. And in that situation, Saul was not a good guy. He was going after David to kill him. And if you read the, some of the accounts there, one day David and his men got to where Saul and his guys were. Saul was on the hunt for David, and they found Saul in the cave, and David was able to sneak in there and cut off the robe, uh, the corner of Saul's robe, and leave. And then when, they're, then when they got away from him, in other words, he could have killed him, but he chose not to. They got away from him, then they're yelling out when, when Saul couldn't get him. They're having this conversation, and here's what it says in 1 Samuel 24.10. Look, the day, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you, but my, my eyes spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord, for he is the Lord's, against my Lord, meaning Saul, for he is the Lord's anointed. And I've read that so many times, but this time it jumped out at me and I see that David said, the Lord delivered you into my hand. 
And in the context of reading the scriptures and trying to determine who caused what, who is behind it, who did it, who allowed it, I'm asking, okay, that's not David prophesying there. That's just an accurate account of what he said. It's not a thus saith the Lord. It's an inspired account of his recollection and of his understanding. He said, Saul, the Lord delivered Saul into my hand. So what? God gave Saul into your hand so you could kill him, but you decided not to because you would, you know, take the higher position and be more honorable. And so, again, what I'm saying is, did the Lord do this or was it just attributed to him? And there's just a real slippery slope there where we're always attributing everything to God. I could tell you other stories if I had time, but let me me say this. Um, Modern day tragedies, calamities, storms, uh, tragic fires in Hawaii, uh, all all these things that are going on in the earth today, are these God's judgment or is it something else? Many Christians are quick to see these events and proclaim God's judgment. He's getting people back. He's judging this nation, this city. Can I tell you, I don't believe that's what's happening. I don't see in the new covenant God judging nations. Okay? I don't, meaning after the cross, God's relation towards people is different than it was before the cross. Now he can legally spare people. And and so, no, I'm not going to say that. One reason is, um, in these situations, there are often Christians who die. In some of the hurricanes and earthquakes and fires and all this, these calamities, Christians. And I just think about that. God killing his own kids. Is, that a, is there a biblical pattern of that? You know what the answer is? No. When you read Old Testament judgments, Noah's flood, Israel coming out of Egypt, Sodom and Gomorrah, you read these accounts, you'll see, one, God warned people. He always told them in advance what was going to happen. Why? Why? Why did he do that? So they could change. So judgment could be averted. He never wanted it. He would warn people in advance. So never are we going to go through a bad time and look back and say, yeah, that must have been God's judgment. Well, absolutely not. He would have warned you. He would have told you clearly in advance so you could escape it. Some say, well, I had a thought that I knew some bad things were going to happen. That's the devil trying to mess with you. Anyway, in all those situations, he removed the righteous before the unrighteous were judged. That's God's pattern, not to judge them together. When Abraham prayed for Sodom and Gomorrah, he said, Lord, if, would you spare them for 50 righteous? And the Lord said, yeah, I'll do it for 50 righteous. And you can walk through that prayer. And it, eventually, he didn't go low enough. And so uh, destruction came, judgment came, but he still, he sent the angels in there to get righteous Lot and his family out of town before judgment came. Because God doesn't do that even before the cross. Now we are after the cross. He's not killing his kids. He's even judgment for the unrighteous. Watch, sinners are already judged. 
you get to escape that judgment by giving your life to Jesus. It's already built into the, the sinful condition. But we escape it through, through the Lord Jesus. And so consider this. If God is doing this to people, think about what he has charged the Christian with. Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Okay, those creatures, which are people, could be living next door to you. They could be living in far away. They could be living in another part of the world. We're charged with preaching the gospel to every creature. Here's my question. Is God killing the people we're trying to save? Does he give me a burden and a, and a heart for people of another land and I, I, I spend money and time and pray and, and do all these things to win people to Jesus, but while I'm traveling over there, he's going to hit them with a storm? Well, Lord, while I'm obeying you, preaching your good news, go share the gospel with your coworker, but you better get to him before I do because I'm going to kill him. I mean, what's, what sense is it? I'm telling you, the mercy of God is far greater than anything we have. His compassion for people is far greater than us. So when you see these tragedies and people dying early and all these things happen, it is not according to God's will. It is against His will. And He's not the one doing it. He's given us a message. He's given us the right to pray. He's given us so many things so we can help people turn. And they can avert some of the tragedies that come their way. Amen? Amen. If anything, if in any way we are at a disadvantage when reading this through time, through culture, through language and translation, we also have a great advantage, meaning the life and teaching of Jesus. We have the, the clear help and, and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm not concerned if there's a verse that I read some time ago, you know what, I don't get that. I don't fully understand that. There's some that I used to not, and now I do. And some I may still go, huh, I don't know about that. I'm coming on over to Jesus. Come on over, let the Holy Spirit teach me, and I have the great advantage. I can know God, and I can be fully confident that he is good to me today. Let's stand up together. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Father, I thank you for working in here today by your spirit and according to the goodness of your will.